What does Eve Halliday find when she ransacks Smith's secret hideaway? P.G. Woodhouse, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Many, many thanks to all of our listeners and supporting members who help to keep us going. I'm sorry about the snafu with last week's episode. I checked the wrong box, and instead of the episode dropping Friday morning, it was available for a few hours on Thursday, then fell off the feed. Brilliant. Sorry about that. We're only in season 14. You'd think I'd know better. I hope everyone is keeping safe and well in this crazy time. I also hope you're taking advantage of the titles available for free during the pandemic. Please go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and go to the Home From School free category to download a selection of titles geared for grades K-12. through Adults can listen too, of course. You can find a link to the free material in the description for today's episode. And I've also added three new titles, Captain Blood, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, and A Room with a View. Feel free to snap up these titles for free, and hopefully they can help you keep your wits sharp at this trying time. Thanks again to our financial contributors. It is the monthly subscriptions that are largely keeping us afloat right now, as we are giving a lot of stuff away. Thank you for helping us to stay strong, and hopefully help to lighten the load of those who are hit particularly hard right now. Every donation helps. Thanks again. The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius is taking longer than I expected. I've already done over 50 episodes, and I'm only about halfway through. So we're shelving that project. I'll finish it up at a later time. The special features of the app will now include a famous poem, or part of a longer poem. I'm going to go through my classic poetry books and read a short poem for the special features. This week's poem is Lord Randall by Sir Patrick Spens. Bob Dylan fans may find it interesting as the structure is similar to A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. Now for our personal moment. Swamp Cooler is up and going. We're all good there. Scylla made us masks. Each of us has three and we wear them as we take our walks along the riverside with our family. That's our, like, exercise. We try and do it every day. And the river walk we take is really beautiful now. The cottonwood trees are leafing out nicely, and lots of people are frequenting our little river walk trail in Provo. We've done this for a few years now, and uh, it's really picked up. The traffic is really picked up on our little river walk. Lots of people getting out with their kids. It's pretty neat. So, that's our personal moment. Thank you very much. And now, Leave It to Smith, Part 9 of 10, by P.G. Woodhouse. Chapter 12. More on the flowerpot theme. In any community in which a sensational crime has recently been committed, the feelings of the individuals who go to make up that community must, of necessity, vary somewhat sharply, according to the degree in which the personal fortunes of each are affected by the outrage. 
vivid in their own way, as may be the emotions of one who sees a fellow-citizen sandbagged in a quiet street, they differ in kind from those experienced by the victim himself. And so, though the theft of Lady Constance Keeble's diamond necklace had stirred Blanding's castle to its depths, it had not affected all those present in quite the same way. It left the house-party divided into two distinct schools of thought— one finding in the occurrence material for gloom and despondency, the other deriving from it nothing but joyful excitement. To this latter section belonged those free young spirits who had chafed at the prospect of being herded into the drawing-room on the eventful night to listen to Smith's reading of Songs of Squalor. It made them tremble now to think of what they would have missed, had Lady Constance's vigilance relaxed sufficiently to enable them to execute the quiet sneak for the billiard-room, of which, even at the eleventh hour, they had thought so wistfully. As far as the Reggies, Berties, Claudes, and Archies at that moment enjoying Lord Emsworth's hospitality were concerned, the thing was top-hole, priceless, and indisputably what the doctor ordered. They spent a great deal of their time going from one country house to the other, and, as a rule, found the routine a little monotonous. A happening like that of the previous night gave a splendid zip to rural life, and when they reflected that, right on top of this binge, there was coming the county ball, it seemed to them that God was in his heaven and all right with the world. They stuck cigarettes in long holders, and collected in groups, chattering like starlings. The gloomy brigade, those with hearts bowed down, listened to their effervescent babbling with one distaste. These last were a small body numerically, but very select. Lady Constance might have been described as their head and patroness. Morning found her still in a state bordering on collapse. After breakfast, however, which she took in her room, and which was sweetened by an interview with Mr. Joseph Keeble, her husband, she brightened considerably. Mr. Keeble, thought Lady Constance, behaved magnificently. She had always loved him dearly, but never so much as when, abstaining from the slightest reproach of her obstinacy in refusing to allow the jewels to be placed in the bank, he spaciously informed her that he would buy her another necklace, just as good, and costing every penny as much as the old one. It was at this point that Lady Constance almost seceded from the ranks of gloom. She kissed Mr. Keeble gratefully, and attacked with something approaching animation the boiled egg at which she had been pecking when he came in. But a few minutes later the average of despair was restored by the enrolment of Mr. Keeble in the ranks of the despondent. He had gladsomely assumed overnight that one of his agents, either Eve or Freddy, had been responsible for the disappearance of the necklace. The fact that Freddy— interviewed by stealth in his room, gapingly disclaimed any share in the matter, had not damped him. He had never expected results from Freddy. But when, after leaving Lady Constance, he encountered Eve, and was given a short outline of history, beginning with her acquisition of the necklace, and ending, like a modern novel, on the sombre note of her finding the flower-pot gone, he too sat him down and mourned as deeply as anyone. Passing with a brief mention over Freddy, whose morose bearing was the subject of considerable comment among the younger set, 
over Lord Emsworth, who woke at twelve o'clock disgusted to find that he had missed several hours among his beloved flower-beds, and over the efficient Baxter, who was roused from sleep at twelve-fifteen by Thomas the footman knocking on his door in order to hand him a note from his employer enclosing a cheque and dispensing with his services, we come to Miss Peavy. At twenty minutes past eleven on this morning, when so much was happening to so many people, Miss Peavy stood in the yew alley gazing belligerently at the stemless mushroom finial of a tree about halfway between the entrance and the point where the alley merged into the west wood. She appeared to be soliloquizing, for though words were proceeding from her with considerable rapidity, there seemed to be no one in sight to whom they were being addressed. Only an exceptionally keen observer would have noted a slight significant quivering among the tree's tightly woven branches. "'You poor bone-headed fish!' the poetess was saying with that strained tenseness which results from the churning up of a generous and emotional nature. "'Isn't there anything in this world you can do without tumbling over your feet and making a mess of it? All I ask of you is to stroll under a window and pick up a few jewels.' "'And now you come and tell me—' "'But Liz,' said the tree, plaintively, "'I do all the difficult part of the job. "'All that there was left for you to handle "'was something a child of three could have done on its ear. "'And now—but Liz, I'm telling you that I couldn't find the stuff. "'I was down there all right, but I couldn't find it. "'You couldn't find it.' "'Miss Peavy pawed restlessly at the soft turf with a shapely shoe.' "'You're the sort of dumb Isaac that couldn't find a bass drum in a telephone booth. "'You didn't look!' "'I did look. Honest, I did. "'Well, the stuff was there. I threw it down the moment the lights went out. "'Someone must have gotten there first and swiped it. "'Who could have got there first? Everybody was up in the room where I was. "'I... am I sure? Am I...' "'The poetess's voice trailed off. She was staring down the yew alley at a couple who had just entered. She hissed a warning in a sharp undertone. Hist! Cheese it, Ed! There's someone coming! The two intruders who had caused Miss Peavy to suspend her remarks to her erring lieutenant were of opposite sexes, a tall girl with fair hair and a taller young man, irreproachably clad in white flannels who beamed down at his companion through a single eyeglass. Miss Peavy gazed at them searchingly as they approached. A sudden thought had come to her at the sight of them. Mistrusting Smith, as she had done ever since Mr. Coots had unmasked him, the impostor that he was, the fact that they were so often together had led her to extend her suspicion to Eve. It might, of course, be nothing but a casual friendship, begun here at the castle. But Miss Peavy had always felt that Eve would bear watching— and now, seeing them together again this morning, it had suddenly come to her that she did not recall having observed Eve among the gathering in the drawing-room last night. True, there had been many people present, but Eve's appearance was striking, and she was sure that she would have noticed her if she had been there. And if she had not been there, why should she not have been on the terrace? Somebody had been on the terrace last night, that was certain. For all her censorious attitude in their recent conversation, Miss Peavy had not really in her heart believed that even a dumbbell like Eddie Coots would not have found the necklace if it had been lying under the window on his arrival. 
Oh, good morning, Mr. McTodd, she cooed. I'm feeling so upset about this terrible affair. Aren't you, Miss Halliday? Yes, said Eve, and she had never said a more truthful word. Smith, for his part, was in more debonair and cheerful mood even than was his wont. He had examined the position of affairs and found life good. He was particularly pleased with the fact that he had persuaded Eve to stroll with him this morning and inspect his cottage in the woods. Buoyant as was his temperament, he had been half afraid that last night's interview on the terrace might have had disastrous effects on their intimacy. He was now feeling full of kindliness and goodwill towards all mankind, even Miss Peavy, and he bestowed on the poetess a dazzling smile. We must always, he said, endeavour to look on the bright side. It was a pity, no doubt, that my reading last night had to be stopped at the cost of about twenty thousand pounds to the Keeble coffers, but let us not forget that but for that timely interruption I should have gone on for about another hour. I am like that. My friends have frequently told me that once I start talking, it requires something in the nature of a cataclysm to stop me. But of course there are drawbacks to everything, and last night's Ranigazoo perhaps shook your nervous system to some extent. I was dreadfully frightened, said Miss Peavy. She turned to Eve with a delicate shiver. Weren't you, Miss Halliday? I wasn't there, said Eve absently. Miss Halliday, explained Smith, has had in the last few days some little experience of myself as orator, and with her usual good sense decided not to go out of her way to get more of me than was absolutely necessary. I was perhaps a trifle wounded at the moment, but on thinking it over, came to the conclusion that she was perfectly justified in her attitude. I endeavour always in my conversation to instruct, elevate, and entertain, but there is no gainsaying the fact that a purist might consider enough of my chit-chat to be sufficient. Such, at any rate, was Miss Halliday's view, and I honour her for it. But here I am, rambling on again, just when I can see that you wish to be alone. We will leave you, therefore, to muse. No doubt we have been interrupting a train of thought which would have resulted, but for my arrival, in a rondel, or a ballad, or some other poetic morceau. Come, Miss Halliday. A weird and repellent female, he said to Eve as they drew out of hearing, created for some purpose which I cannot fathom. Everything in this world, I like to think, is placed there for some useful end. But why the authorities unleashed Miss Peavy on us is beyond me. It is not much to say that she gives me a pain in the gizzard. Miss Peavy, unaware of these harsh views, had watched them out of sight, and now she turned excitedly to the tree which sheltered her ally. Ed! Hello? replied the muffled voice of Mr. Coots. Did you hear? No. Oh, my heavens! cried his overwrought partner. He's gone deaf now. That girl! You didn't hear what she was saying? She said that she wasn't in the drawing-room when those lights went out. Ed, she was down below on the terrace. That's where she was, picking up the stuff. And if it isn't hidden somewhere, it's in that McTodd's shack down there in the woods, I'll eat my Sunday rubbers. Eve, with Smith prattling amiably at her side, pursued her way through the wood. She was wondering why she had come. She ought, she felt, to have been very cold and distant to this young man after what had occurred between them last night. 
but somehow it was difficult to be cold and distant with Smith. He cheered her stricken soul. By the time they reached the little clearing and came in sight of the squat, shed-like building with its funny windows and stained door, her spirits, always mercurial, had risen to a point where she found herself almost able to forget her troubles. "'What a horrible-looking place!' she exclaimed. "'Whatever did you want it for?' "'Purely as a nook,' said Smith, taking out his key. "'You know how the man of sensibility and refinement needs a nook. "'In this rushing age it is imperative that the thinker shall have a place, however humble, where he can be alone. "'But you aren't a thinker. You wrong me. "'For the last few days I have been doing some extremely brisk thinking, "'and the strain has taken its toll. "'The fierce whirl of life at Blandings is wearing me away.' There are dark circles under my eyes, and I see floating spots. He opened the door. Well, here we are. Will you pop in for a moment? Eve went in. The single sitting-room of the cottage certainly bore out the promise of the exterior. It contained a table with a red cloth, a chair, three stuffed birds in a glass case on the wall, and a small horsehair sofa. A depressing, musty scent pervaded the place— as if a cheese had recently died there in painful circumstances. Eve gave a little shiver of distaste. "'I understand your silent criticism,' said Smith. "'You're saying to yourself that plain living and high thinking is evidently the ideal of the gameskeepers on the Blandings estate. They are strong, rugged men who care little for the refinements of interior decoration. But shall we blame them? If I had to spend most of the day and night shivying poachers— and keeping an eye on the local rabbits, I imagine that in my off hours practically anything with a roof would satisfy me. It was in the hope that you might be able to offer some hints and suggestions for small improvements here and there that I invited you to inspect my little place. There is no doubt that it wants doing up a bit by a woman's gentle hand. Will you take a look round and give out a few ideas? The wallpaper is, I fear, a fixture— but in every other direction consider yourself untrammeled. Eve looked about her. Well, she said dubiously, I don't think— She stopped abruptly, tingling all over. A second glance had shown her something which her first careless inspection had overlooked. Half hidden by a ragged curtain, there stood on the window-sill a large flower-pot containing a geranium— and across the surface of the flower-pot was a broad splash of white paint. "'You were saying?' said Smith courteously. Eve did not reply. She hardly heard him. Her mind was in a confused whirl. A monstrous suspicion was forming itself in her brain. "'You are admiring the shrub?' said Smith. "'I found it lying about up at the castle this morning and pinched it. I thought it would add a touch of colour to the place.' Eve, looking at him keenly, as his gaze shifted to the flower-pot, told herself that her suspicion had been absurd. Surely this blandness could not be a cloak for guilt. Where did you find it? By one of the windows in the hall, more or less wasting its sweetness. I am bound to say I am a little disappointed in the thing. I had a sort of idea it would turn the old homestead into a floral bower, but it doesn't seem to. "'It's a beautiful geranium.' "'There,' said Smith, "'I cannot agree with you. 
"'It seems to me to have the glanders or something. "'It only wants watering, "'and unfortunately this cosy little place "'appears to possess no water supply. "'I take it that the late proprietor, when in residence, "'used to trudge to the back door of the castle "'and fetch what he needed in a bucket. "'If this moribund plant fancies "'that I am going to spend my time "'racing to and fro with refreshments, "'it is vastly mistaken.' "'Tomorrow it goes in the dustbin.' "'Eve shut her eyes. "'She was awed by a sense of having arrived at a supreme moment. "'She had the sensations of a gambler "'who risks all on a single throw. "'What a shame!' she said, "'and her voice, though she tried to control it, shook. "'You had better give it to me. "'I'll take care of it. "'It's just what I want for my room. "'Pray take it,' said Smith. "'It isn't mine, but pray take it.' "'and very encouraging it is, let me add, "'that you should be accepting gifts from me in this hearty fashion, "'for it is well known that there is no surer sign "'of the dawning of the divine emotion—love,' he explained, "'than this willingness to receive presents from the hand of the adorer. "'I make progress. I make progress. "'You don't do anything of the kind,' said Eve. "'Her eyes were sparkling, and her heart sang within her. In the revulsion of feeling which had come to her on finding her suspicions unfounded, she was aware of a warm friendliness towards this absurd young man. "'Pardon me,' said Smith firmly. "'I am quoting an established authority, Aunt Bell of Home Gossip.' "'I must be going,' said Eve. She took the flower-pot and hugged it to her. "'I've got work to do.' "'Work, work, always work,' sighed Smith. "'The curse of the age. "'Well, I will escort you back to your cell. "'No, you won't,' said Eve. "'I mean, thank you for your polite offer, "'but I want to be alone.' "'Alone?' Smith looked at her, astonished. "'When you have the chance of being with me? "'This is a strange attitude.' "'Good-bye,' said Eve. "'Thank you for being so hospitable and lavish. "'I'll try and find some cushions and muslin and stuff "'to brighten up this place.' "'Your presence does that adequately,' said Smith, accompanying her to the door. "'By the way, returning to the subject we were discussing last night, I forgot to mention, when asking you to marry me, that I can do card tricks. Really? And also a passable imitation of a cat calling to her young. Has this no weight with you? Think. These things come in very handy in the long winter evenings. But I shan't be there.' "'when you are imitating cats in the long winter evenings. "'I think you are wrong. "'As I visualise my little home, "'I can see you there very clearly, "'sitting before the fire. "'Your maid has put you into something loose. "'The light of the flickering flames "'reflects itself in your lovely eyes. "'You are pleasantly tired after an afternoon's shopping, "'but not so tired as to be unable to select a card, "'any card, from the pack which I offer good-bye.' "'said Eve. "'If it must be so. "'Good-bye, for the present. "'I shall see you anon. "'I expect so. "'Good. "'I will count the minutes.' "'Eve walked rapidly away. "'As she snuggled the flower-pot under her arm, "'she was feeling like a child "'about to open its Christmas stocking. "'Before she had gone far, "'a shout stopped her, "'and she perceived Smith galloping gracefully in her wake. "'Can you spare me a moment?' "'said Smith. "'Certainly.' "'I should have added that I can also recite Gunga Din. "'Will you think that over?' "'I will. Thank you.'
said Smith. Thank you. I have a feeling that it may just turn the scale. He raised his hat ambassadorially and galloped away again. Eve found herself unable to wait any longer. Smith was out of sight now, and the wood was very still and empty. Birds twittered in the branches, and the sun made little pools of gold upon the ground. She cast a swift glance about her and crouched down in the shelter of a tree. The birds stopped singing. The sun no longer shone. The wood had become cold and sinister. For Eve, with a heart of lead, was staring blankly at a little pile of mould at her feet. Mould which she had sifted again and again in a frenzied, fruitless effort to find a necklace which was not there. The empty flower pot seemed to leer up at her in mockery. Chapter 13 Smith Receives Guests Blandling's castle was astir from roof to hall. Lights blazed, voices shouted, bells rang. All over the huge building there prevailed a vast activity, like that of a barracks on the eve of the regiment's departure for abroad. Dinner was over, and the expeditionary force was making its final preparations before starting off in many motor-cars for the county ball at Shifley. In the bedrooms on every floor, Reggie's, doubtful at the last moment about their white ties, were feverishly arranging new ones. Bertie's brushed their already glistening hair, and Claude's shouted to Archie's along the passages, insulting inquiries as to whether they had been sneaking their handkerchiefs. Valets skimmed like swallows up and down corridors. Maids fluttered in and out of rooms in aid of beauty in distress. The noise penetrated into every nook and corner of the house. It vexed the efficient Baxter, going through his papers in the library, preparatory to leaving Blandings on the morrow, forever. It disturbed Lord Emsworth, who, stoutly declining to go within ten miles of the county ball, had retired to his room with a book on herbaceous borders. It troubled the peace of Beach the butler, refreshing himself after his activities around the dinner-table with a glass of sound port in the housekeeper's room. The only person in the place who paid no attention to it was Eve Halliday. Eve was too furious to pay attention to anything but her deleterious thoughts. As she walked on the terrace, to which she had fled in quest of solitude, her teeth were set and her blue eyes glowed belligerently. As Miss Peavy would have put it in one of her colloquial moods, she was mad clear through. For Eve was a girl of spirit, and there is nothing your girl of spirit so keenly resents as being made a fool of, whether it be by fate or by a fellow human creature. Eve was in the uncomfortable position of having had this indignity put upon her by both. But, while, as far as fate was concerned, she merely smouldered rebelliously, her animosity towards Smith was vivid in the extreme. A hot wave of humiliation made her writhe as she remembered the infantile guilelessness with which she had accepted the preposterous story he had told her in explanation of his presence at Blandings in another man's name. He had been playing with her all the time— fooling her. And, most unforgivable crime of all, 
he had dared to pretend that he was fond of her, and he was face burned again to make her almost fond of him. How、oh, he must have laughed! Well, she was not beaten yet. Her chin went up, and she began to walk quicker. He was clever, but she would be cleverer. The game was not over. Hello. A white waistcoat was gleaming at her side. Polished shoes shuffled on the turf. Light hair, brushed and brilliantined to the last possible pitch of perfection, shone in the light of the stars. The Honourable Freddie Threepwood was in her midst. Well, Freddie," said Eve resignedly. "I say," said Freddie, in a voice in which self-pity fought with commiseration for her. Beastly shame you aren't coming to the hop. I don't mind, but I do dash it. The thing won't be anything without you. A bally washout, and I've been trying out some new steps with the Victrola. Well, there will be plenty of other girls there for you to step on. I don't want other girls dash them. I want you. That's very nice of you," said Eve. The first truculence of her manner had softened. She reminded herself. As she had so often been obliged to remind herself before, that Freddie meant well, but it can't be helped. I'm only an employee here, not a guest. I'm not invited. I know," said Freddie. "That's what makes it so dashed sickening. It's like the picture I saw once, a modern Cinderella. Only there, the girl nipped off to the dance, disguised, you know, and had a most topping time. I wish life was a bit more like the movies." Well, it was enough like the movies last night when, oh. Eve stopped. Her heart gave a sudden jump. Somehow the presence of Freddie was so inextricably associated in her mind with limp proposals of marriage that she had completely forgotten that there was another and a more dashing side to his nature, that side which Mister Keeble had revealed to her at their meeting in Market Blandings on the previous afternoon. She looked at him with new eyes. Anything up? Said Freddie. Eve took him excitedly by the sleeve and drew him farther away from the house. Not that there was any need to do so, for the bustle within continued unabated. Freddie, she whispered, "Listen, I met Mister Keeble yesterday after I had left you, and he told me all about how you and he had planned to steal Lady Constance's necklace." Good Lord! Cried Freddie. And leaped like a stranded fish, and I've got an idea," said Eve. She had, and it was one which had only in this instant come to her. Until now, though she had tilted her chin bravely and assured herself that the game was not over and that she was not yet beaten, a small discouraging voice had whispered to her all the while that this was mere bravado. What the voice had asked. Are you going to do? And she had not been able to answer it, but now, with Freddie as an ally, she could act. I told you all about it. Freddie was muttering pallidly. He had never had a very high opinion of his uncle Joseph's mentality, but he had supposed him capable of keeping a thing like that to himself. He was indeed thinking of Mister Keeble, almost the identical thoughts which Mister Keeble. In the first moments of his interview with Eve and Market Blandings, had thought of him, and these reflections brought much the same qualms which they had brought to the elder conspirator. Once these things got talked about, mused Freddie agitatedly, 
He never knew where they would stop. Before his mental eye there swam a painful picture of his Aunt Constance, informed of the plot, tackling him and demanding the return of her necklace. "'Told you all about it?' he bleated, and like Mr. Keeble mopped his brow. "'It's all right,' said Eve impatiently. "'It's quite all right. He asked me to steal the necklace too.' "'You?' said Freddy, gaping. "'Yes. My gosh!' cried Freddy, electrified. "'Then it was you who got the thing last night?' "'Yes, it was. But—' For a moment, Freddy had to wrestle with something. There was almost a sordid envy. Then better feelings prevailed. He quivered with manly generosity. He gave Eve's hand a tender pat. It was too dark for her to see it, but he was registering renunciation.' "'Little girl,' he murmured. "'There's no one I'd rather got that thousand quid than you. "'If I couldn't have it myself, I mean to say, "'Little girl, oh, be quiet,' cried Eve. "'I wasn't doing it for any thousand pounds. "'I didn't want Mr. Keeble to give me money.' "'You didn't want him to give you money?' repeated Freddy, wonderingly. "'I just wanted to help Phyllis. She's my friend. "'Pals, partner.' "'Pals! Pals till hell freezes!' cried Freddy, deeply moved. "'What are you talking about?' "'Sorry, that was a subtitle from a thing called Prairie Nell, you know. "'Just happened across my mind. "'It was in the second reel where the two fellows are—' "'Yes, yes, never mind. "'Thought I'd mention it. "'Tell me. "'It seemed to fit in. "'Do stop, Freddy. "'Right-o. "'Tell me,' resumed Eve. "'Is Mr. McTodd going to the ball?' "'Eh?' Why, yes, I suppose so. Then listen. You know that little cottage your father has let him have? Little cottage? Yes, in the wood past the yew alley. Little cottage? I never heard of any little cottage. Well, he's got one, said Eve. And as soon as everybody has gone to the ball, you and I are going to burgle it. What? Burgle it. Burgle it? Yes, burgle it. Freddy gulped. Look here, old thing. "'he said plaintively. "'This is a bit beyond me. "'It doesn't seem to me to make sense.' "'Eve forced herself to be patient. "'After all, she reflected, "'perhaps she had been approaching the matter a little rapidly. "'The desire to beat Freddy violently over the head passed, "'and she began to speak slowly, "'and as far as she could manage it in words of one syllable. "'I can make it quite clear "'if you will listen and not say a word till I've done.' This man who calls himself McTodd is not Mr. McTodd at all. He is a thief, who got into the place by saying that he was McTodd. He stole the jewels from me last night and hid them in his cottage. But I say, don't interrupt. I know he has them there, so when he has gone to the ball and the coast is clear, you and I will go and search till we find them. But I say— Eve crushed down her impatience once more. "'Well, do you really think this cove has got the necklace?' "'I know he has.' "'Well, then, it's jolly well the best thing that could possibly have happened, "'because I got him here to pinch it for Uncle Joseph.' "'What? Absolutely! "'You see, I began to have a doubt or two "'as to whether I was quite equal to the contract, "'so I roped in this bird by way of a gang. "'You got him here? "'You mean—' "'You sent for him, and arranged that he should pass himself off as Mr. McTodd? "'Well, 
no, not exactly that. He was coming here as MacTodd anyway, as far as I can gather. But I'd talked it over with him, you know, before that, and asked him to pinch the necklace. Then you know him quite well. He is a friend of yours? I wouldn't say that exactly. But he said he was a great pal of Phyllis and her husband. Did he tell you that? Absolutely. When? In the train. I mean... Was it before or after you had told him why you wanted the necklace stolen? Eh? Let me think. After. You're sure? Yes. Tell me exactly what happened, said Eve. I can't understand it all at present. Freddy marshalled his thoughts. Well, let's see. Well, to start with, I told Uncle Joe I would pinch the necklace and slip it to him. And he said if I did, he'd give me a thousand quid. As a matter of fact, he made it two thousand, and very decent of him, I thought it. Is that straight? Yes. Then I sort of got cold feet. Began to wonder, don't you know, if I hadn't bitten off rather more than I could chew. Yes. And then I saw this advertisement in the paper. Advertisement? What advertisement? There was an advertisement in the paper saying, if anybody wanted anything done, simply apply to this chap. So I wrote him a letter and went up and had a talk with him in the lobby of the Piccadilly Palace. Only, unfortunately, I'd promised the governor I'd catch the 1250 home, so I had a dash off in the middle. Must have thought me rather an ass, it's sometimes occurred to me since. I mean, practically all I said was, will you pinch my aunt's necklace, and then buzzed off to catch the train. Never thought I'd see the man again. But when I got into the five o'clock train, I missed the 1250, there he was, as large as life, and the governor suddenly trickled in from another compartment, and introduced him to me as MacTodd the poet. Then the governor legged it, and this chap told me he wasn't really MacTodd, only pretending to be MacTodd. Didn't that strike you as strange? Yes, rather rummy. Did you ask him why he was doing such an extraordinary thing? Oh, yes, but he wouldn't tell me. And then he asked me why I wanted him to pinch Aunt Connie's necklace, and it suddenly occurred to me that everything was working rather smoothly. I mean, him being on his way to the castle like that. "'Right on the spot, don't you know?' "'So I told him all about Phyllis, "'and it was then that he said "'that he had been a pal of hers and her husband's for years. "'So we fixed it up "'that he was to get the necklace and hand it over. "'I must say I was rather drawn to the chappy. "'He said he didn't want any money for swiping the thing.' "'Eve laughed bitterly. "'Why should he, "'when he was going to get twenty thousand pounds worth of diamonds and keep them? "'Oh, Freddy, "'I should have thought that even you would have seen through him.' You go to this perfect stranger and tell him there is a valuable necklace waiting here to be stolen. You find him on his way to steal it, and you trust him implicitly just because he tells you he knows Phyllis, whom he had never heard of in his life till you mentioned her, Freddy. Really? The Honourable Freddy scratched his beautifully shaven chin. Well, when you put it like that, he said, I must own it does sound a bit off. "'but he seems such a dashed matey sort of bird. "'Cheery and all that. "'I like the feller.' "'What nonsense. "'Well, but you liked him, too. "'I mean to say, you were about with him a goodish lot. "'I hate him,' said Eve angrily. "'I wish I had never seen him. "'And if I let him get away with that necklace "'and cheat poor little Phyllis out of her money, "'I'll... I'll...' "'She raised a grimly determined chin to the stars. "'Freddy watched her admiringly. "'I say, you know... "'You are a wonderful girl,' he said. "'He shan't get away with it, if I have to pull the place down.' 
When you chuck your head up like that, you remind me a bit of what's her name, the famous player's star. You know, girl who was in Wed to a Satyr. Only, added Freddy hurriedly, she isn't half so pretty. I say I was rather looking forward to that county ball, but now this has happened, I don't mind missing it a bit. I mean, it seems to draw us closer together somehow, if you follow me. I say honestly, all kidding aside, you'd think that love might some day awaken in. We shall want a lamp, of course, said Eve. Eh? A lamp to see with when we are in the cottage. Can you get one? Freddy reluctantly perceived that the moment for sentiment had not arrived. A lamp? Oh, yes, of course, rather. Better get two, said Eve, and meet me here about half an hour after everybody has gone to the ball. The tiny sitting room of Smith's Haven of Rest in the Woods had never reached a high standard of decorativeness, even in its best days. But as Eve paused from her labours and looked at it in the light of her lamp, about an hour after her conversation with Freddy on the terrace, it presented a picture of desolation which would have startled the plain living gamekeeper to whom it had once been a home. Even Freddy, though normally an unobservant youth, seemed awed by the ruin he had helped to create. Golly, he observed, I say we've rather mucked the place up a bit. It was no overstatement. Eve had come to the cottage to search, and she had searched thoroughly. The torn carpet lay in an untidy heap against the wall. The table was overturned. Boards had been wrenched from the floor, bricks from the chimney place. The horsehair sofa was in ribbons, and the one small cushion in the room lay limply in a corner, its stuffing distributed north, south, east, and west. There was soot everywhere on the walls, on the floor, on the fireplace, and on Freddy. A brace of dead bats, the further result with the latter's groping in a chimney, which had not been swept for seven months, reposed in the fender. The sitting-room had never been luxurious. It was now not even cosy. Eve did not reply. She was struggling with what she was fair-minded enough to see was an entirely unjust fever of irritation with her courteous and obliging assistant as its object. It was wrong, she knew, to feel like this. That she should be furious at her failure to find the jewels was excusable, but she had no possible right to be furious with Freddy. It was not his fault that Soot had poured from the chimney in lieu of diamonds. If he had asked for a necklace and been given a dead bat, he was surely more to be pitied than censured. Yet Eve, eyeing his grimy face, would have given very much to have been able to scream loudly and thrown something at him. The fact was, the Honourable Freddy belonged to that unfortunate type of humanity which automatically gets blamed for everything in moments of stress. "'Well, the bally thing isn't here,' said Freddy. He spoke thickly, as a man will, whose mouth is covered with soot. "'I know it isn't,' said Eve. "'But this isn't the only room in the house.' "'Think he might have hidden the stuff upstairs, or downstairs?' "'Freddy shook his head, dislodging a portion of a third bat. "'Must be upstairs if it's anywhere. I "'Mean to say there isn't any downstairs. "'There's the cellar,' said Eve. "'Take your lamp and go have a look.' "'For the first time in the proceedings a spirit of disaffection "'seemed to manifest itself in the bosom of her assistant. "'Up till this moment,' Freddy had taken his orders placidly and executed them with promptness and civility. 
even when the first shower of soot had driven him choking from the fireplace, his manly spirit had not been crushed. He had merely uttered a startled, "'Oh, I say!' and returned gallantly to the attack. But now he obviously hesitated. "'Go on,' said Eve impatiently. "'Yes, but I say, you know, what's the matter?' "'I don't think the chap would be likely to hide a necklace in the cellar. "'I vote we give it a miss and try upstairs. "'Don't be silly, Freddy. "'He may have hidden it anywhere. "'Well, to be absolutely honest, "'I'd much rather not go into any bally cellar, "'if it's all the same to you. "'Why ever not?' "'Beetles. "'Always had a horror of beetles, ever since I was a kid.' "'Eve bit her lip.' She was feeling, as Miss Peavy had so often felt when associated in some delicate undertaking with Edward Coutts, that exasperating sense of man's inadequacy which comes to high-spirited girls at moments such as these. To achieve the end for which she had started out that night, she would have waded waist-high through a sea of beetles. But divining with that sixth sense which tells women when the male has been pushed just so far, and can be pushed no farther, that Freddy, wax though he might be in her hands at any other circumstances, was on this one point adamant. She made no further effort to bend him to her will. All right, she said. I'll go down into the cellar. You go and look upstairs. No, I say, sure you don't mind? Eve took up her lamp and left the craven. For a girl of iron resolution and unswerving purpose, Eve's inspection of the cellar was decidedly cursory. A distinct feeling of relief came over her, as she stood at the top of the steps, and saw by the light of the lamp how small and bare it was. For impervious as she might be to the intimidation of beetles, her armour still contained a chink. She was terribly afraid of rats." and even when the rays of the lamp disclosed no scuttling horrors, she still lingered for a moment before descending. You never knew with rats. They pretended not to be there, just to lure you on, and then came out and whizzed about your ankles. However, the memory of her scorn for Freddy's pusillanimity forced her on, and she went down. The word cellar is an elastic one. It can be applied equally to the acres of bottle-fringed vaults, which lie beneath a great pile like Blanding's castle, and to a hole in the ground like the one in which she now found herself. This cellar was easily searched. She stamped on its stone flags with an ear strained to detect any note of hollowness, but none came. She moved the lamp so that it shone into every corner, but there was not even a crack in which a diamond necklace could have been concealed. Satisfied that the place contained nothing but a little coal dust and a smell of damp decay, Eve passed thankfully out. The law of elimination was doing its remorseless work. It had ruled out the cellar, the kitchen, and the living room, that is to say the whole of the lower of the two floors which made up the cottage. There now remained only the rooms upstairs— there were probably not more than two, and Freddy must already have searched one of these. The quest seemed to be nearing its end. As Eve made for the narrow staircase that led to the second floor, the lamp shook in her hand and cast weird shadows. Now that success was in sight, the strain was beginning to affect her nerves. It was to nerves 
that in the first instant of hearing it, she attributed what sounded like a soft cough in the sitting-room, a few feet from where she stood. Then a chill feeling of dismay gripped her. It could only, she thought, be Freddy, returned from his search. And if Freddy had returned from his search already, what could it mean, except that those upstairs rooms, on which she had counted so confidently, had proved as empty as the others? Freddy was not one of your restrained, unemotional men. If he had found the necklace, he would have been downstairs in two bounds, shouting. His silence was ominous. She opened the door and went quickly in. "'Freddy!' she began, and broke off with a gasp. It was not Freddy who had coughed. It was Smith. He was seated on the remains of the horsehair sofa, toying with an automatic pistol, and gravely surveying through his monocle the ruins of a home. "'Good evening,' said Smith. It was not for a philosopher like himself to display astonishment. He was, however, undeniably feeling it. When a few minutes before he had encountered Freddy in this same room, he had received a distinct shock. But a rough theory which would account for Freddy's presence in his home from home he had been able to work out. He groped in vain for one which would explain Eve. Mere surprise, however— was never enough to prevent Smith talking. He began at once. "'It was nice of you,' he said, rising courteously, "'to look in. Won't you sit down? On the sofa, perhaps? Or would you prefer a brick?' Eve was not yet equal to speech. She had been so firmly convinced that he was ten miles away at Shifley that his presence here in the sitting-room of the cottage had something of the breathtaking quality of a miracle.' The explanation, if she could have known it, was simple. Two excellent reasons had kept Smith from gracing the county ball with his dignified support. In the first place, as Shifley was only four miles from the village where he had spent most of his life, he had regarded it as probable, if not certain, that he would have encountered there old friends, to whom it would have been both tedious and embarrassing to explain why he had changed his name to MacTodd, and, secondly— Though he had not actually anticipated a nocturnal raid on his little nook, he had thought it well to be on the premises that evening, in case Mr. Edward Coutts should have been getting ideas into his head. As soon, therefore, as the castle had emptied itself, and the wheels of the last car had passed away down the drive, he had pocketed Mr. Coutts's revolver, and proceeded to the cottage. Eve recovered her self-possession. She was not a girl given to collapse in moments of crisis. The first shock of amazement had passed. A humiliating feeling of extreme foolishness, which came directly after, had also passed. She was now grimly ready for battle. "'Where is Mr. Threepwood?' she asked. "'Upstairs. I have put him in storage for a while. Do not worry about Comrade Threepwood. He has lots to think about.' He is under the impression that if he stirs out, he will be instantly shot. Oh? Well, I want to put this lamp down. Will you please pick up that table? By all means. But I am a novice in these matters. Ought I not first to say, hands up or something? Will you please pick up that table? A friend of mine, one Coots, you must meet him sometime, generally remarks, Hey! in a sharp, arresting voice on these occasions. 
Personally, I consider the expression too abrupt. Still, he has had great experience. Will you please pick up that table? Most certainly. I take it, then, that you would prefer to dispense with the usual formalities. In that case, I will park this revolver on the mantelpiece while we chat. I have taken a curious dislike to the thing. It makes me feel like dangerous Dan McGrew. Eve put down the lamp, and there was silence for a moment. Smith looked about him thoughtfully. He picked up one of the dead bats and covered it with his handkerchief. Somebody's mother, he murmured reverently. Eve sat down on the sofa. Mr. She stopped. I can't call you Mr. McTodd. Will you please tell me your name? Ronald, said Smith. Ronald Eustace. I suppose you have a surname, snapped Eve, or an alias? Smith eyed her with a pained expression. I may be hypersensitive, he said, but that last remark sounded to me like a dirty dig. You seem to imply that I am some sort of a criminal. Eve laughed shortly. I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. There's not much sense in pretending now, is there? What is your name? Smith. The P is silent. Well, Mr. Smith, I imagine you understand why I am here. I took it for granted that you had come to fulfill your kindly promise of doing the place up a bit. Will you be wounded if I say frankly that I preferred it the way it was before? All this may be the last word in ultra-modern interior decoration, but I suppose I am old-fashioned. The whisper flies round Shropshire and adjoining counties. Smith is hidebound. He is not attuned to up-to-date methods. Honestly, don't you think you have rather unduly stressed the bizarre note? This soot! These dead bats! I have come to get that necklace! Ah, the necklace! I'm going to get it, too! Smith shook his head gently. There, he said, if you will pardon me, I take issue with you. There is nobody to whom I would rather give that necklace than you, but there are special circumstances connected with it which render such an action impossible. I fancy, Miss Halliday, that you have been misled by your young friend upstairs. Now, let me speak, he said, raising a hand. You know what a treat it is to me. The way I envisage the matter is thus. I still cannot understand as completely as I could wish how you came to be mixed up in the affair, but it is plain that in some way or other Comrade Threepwood has enlisted your services, and I regret to be obliged to inform you that the motives animating him in this quest are not pure. To put it crisply, he is engaged in what Comrade Coots, to whom I alluded just now, would call funny business. I pardon me, said Smith, if you will be patient for a few minutes more. I shall have finished, and then shall be delighted to lend an attentive ear to any remarks you may wish to make. As it occurs to me, indeed you hinted as much yourself just now, that my own position in this little matter has an appearance which, to the uninitiated, might seem tolerably rummy. I had better explain how I come to be guarding a diamond necklace which does not belong to me. I rely on your womanly discretion to let the thing go no further. Will you please— In one moment, please. The facts are as follows. Our mutual friend, Mr. Keeble, Miss Halliday, has a stepdaughter— who is married to one comrade Jackson, who, if he had no other claim to fame, 
would go ringing down through history for this reason, that he and I were at school together, and that he is my best friend. We two have sported on the green, oh, a lot of times. Well, owing to one thing and another, the Jackson family is rather badly against it at the present. Eve jumped up angrily. I don't believe a word of it, she cried. What is the use of trying to fool me like this? You have never heard of Phyllis before Freddy spoke about her in the train. Believe me, I won't. Freddy got you down here to help him steal that necklace and give it to Mr. Keeble so that he could help Phyllis. And now you've got it and are trying to keep it for yourself. Smith started slightly. His monocle fell from its place. Is everybody in this little plot? Are you also one of Comrade Keeble's corps of assistants? Mr. Keeble asked me to try to get the necklace for him. Smith replaced his monocle thoughtfully. This, he said, opens up a new line of thought. Can it be that I have been wronging Comrade Threepwood all this time? I must confess that when I found him here, just now standing like Marius among the ruins of Carthage, the illusion is a classical one, and the fruit of an expensive education, I jumped, I may say sprang, to the conclusion that he was endeavouring to double-cross both myself and the boss by getting hold of the necklace with a view to retaining it for his own benefit. It never occurred to me that he might be crediting me with the same sinful guile. Eve ran to him and clutched his arm. Mr. Smith, is this really true? Are you really a friend of Phyllis? She looks on me as a grandfather. Are you a friend of hers? We were at school together. This, said Smith cordially, is one of the most gratifying moments of my life. It makes us all seem like one great big family. But I've never heard Phyllis speak about you. Strange, said Smith. Strange. Surely she was not ashamed of her humble friend. Uh, what? I must explain, said Smith, that until recently I was earning a difficult livelihood by slinging fish about in Billingsgate Market. It is possible that some snobbish strain in Comrade Jackson's bride, which I confess I had not suspected, kept her from admitting that she was accustomed to hobnob with one in the fish business. Good gracious, cried Eve. I beg your pardon? Smith? Fish business? Why, it was you who called at Phyllis's house while I was there. Just before I came down here, I remember Phyllis saying how sorry she was that we had not met. She said you were just my sort of... I mean, she said she wanted me to meet you. This, said Smith, is becoming more and more gratifying every moment. It seems to me that you and I were made for each other. I am your best friend's best friend, and we both have a taste for stealing other people's jewellery. I cannot see how you can very well resist the conclusion that we are twin souls. Don't be silly. We shall go into that series of husbands and wives who work together. Where is the necklace? Smith sighed. The business note. Always the business note. Can't we keep all that till later? No, we can't. Ah, well. Smith crossed the room and took down from the wall the case of stuffed birds. The one place, said Eve with mortification, where we didn't think of looking. Smith opened the case and removed the centre bird, a depressed-looking fowl with glass eyes which stared with a haunting pathos. He felt in its interior 
and pulled out something that glittered and sparkled in the lamplight. Oh! Eve ran her fingers almost lovingly through the jewels as they lay before her on the little table. Aren't they beautiful? Distinctly. I think I may say that of all the jewels I have ever stolen— Hey! Eve let the necklace fall with a cry. Smith spun round. In the doorway stood Mr. Edward Coots, pointing a pistol. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of Leave It to Smith, The P is Silent, Part 9 of 10 by P.G. Woodhouse. If you have enjoyed this book, please feel free to download the titles that we have made available for free during the pandemic. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and go to the Home From School free category. And if you can think of anyone who this might be able to help, please let them know. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs>